see it like that. Save. This may help. So, uh, Alan, you know, when we start the recording, I can't recall that well, we just had the wrong date on the first slide, so I don't even know how that works. If I've changed it now, it changes there, but my apologies. It's Wednesday. Hump day. Uh, hello again. <laughs> I'm just getting myself set up again now. There we go. All right. We're going to start off in, I think, come on now, Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah chapter 9, where the Lord is called the Prince of Peace. We're going to see today how uh, sin and how we feel about sin is directly responsible for or directly related to our experience with peace or ability to have peace. That peace and sin are closely tied together. So with that, uh, let's pray. Let's thank God for our opportunity. Let's thank God for his word and for all that he has provided and to be uh, grateful, good, and humble students of his word. So with that, let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, thank you for this time to be together and hear your word another day in which you have graciously provided for us all that we need. We know, Father, that today you have given us our daily bread, that you have provided for us both mentally and physically everything that we could possibly need so that we can pursue the spiritual life. Uh, we know, Father, that we're not always at peace, but that we should be. Uh, we know, Father, that we always don't have the uh, uh, attitude towards sin that we should, but we know that the attitude we should have, and we strive for that. And so, actually, Father, we ask that through your word today that we would um, be able to see uh, what our view towards sin should be in a world that is filled with it and in bodies that at times desire it. And so, Father, we ask, first off, we thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord, we know that we are completely forgiven so that though we fail, we can continue to pick ourselves up and strive to move forward towards the right attitude that we should have. With that right attitude, we will live right. And so thank you, Father, for your word and for the spirit within that makes that word alive and powerful. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, today is going to be... <coughs> um, uh, it, it, again, we're, we're studying the Lord's Prayer, and we're in the fifth petition, which is forgive us our debts. Uh, in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, it's forgive us our sins. And so the debts are sins. And so we see there, as we, we've already looked at that, that the sins we commit against God are debts that are held by God. And fortunately, I mean, fortunate is not a strong enough word, 
but we have been forgiven through our Lord's sacrifice on the cross, and we must never forget that. We must always appreciate forgiveness. Uh, So we know we're forgiven, and that has its own freedom that goes with it, uh, as Paul writes to the Galatians. But as he said to the Galatians, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, which means that in our freedom, we can... Uh, move in directions that are away from the will of God. And there are several directions, there are many directions we can go. Uh, but that's what really sin is. And I'm wondering if we should do a class on that, uh, that, you know, what is, what do we define sin as, what is it? Uh, sin is moving from the will of God, it's violating the will of God. The, the uh, Bible paints with a broad brush what sin is. Uh, wickedness, unrighteousness, ungodliness, words like that, um, but also speaks of specific sins. Coming to, come to, comes to mind Galatians chapter 5, it's in uh, verses 17 through 21, uh, that the deeds of the, the flesh, deeds of the flesh are evident, and <clears throat> Paul gives a long list of the deeds of the flesh, what are particular sins. Uh, and so, you know, we have a sin problem. Mankind, it is our main problem. And therefore, sin is a major topic in the Scripture. and something that we need to be reminded of and, um, and, and our, our attitude about sin should be uh, honed and sharpened again and again. So, today is about how do you feel about sin and how you feel about it. We're not talking about uh, and neither is Jesus telling us to pray about, like the cross. Um, the cross is where the forgiveness of sin was accomplished. When Jesus was crucified, he died for the sins of the whole world. And being, having died for the sins of the world, he was judged for the sins of the world. And so that's where our forgiveness comes from. The scripture is clear in this. this the, the forgiveness, as we saw yesterday, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness it is the blood of Christ that has provided for us forgiveness. We are cleansed, as, as John writes in 1 John 1, 5, 1, 5 and 6, that we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. So this prayer, forgive us our sins, is not about necessarily our individual sins. It's really about sins in plural, our sins in general. And as we saw on Sunday, we can't count them all. So we have more than we know. We have sins that we don't even know we've committed because we're not aware of them enough. I mean, we're so fallen and so used to sin, though we're redeemed and new creatures, that there are sins we commit that we don't even notice. Uh, so, uh, we see that um, that what's in view here is not necessarily our forgiveness, although that is in view. I mean, not that I should say not the mechanics of forgiveness, not the act of forgiveness. What Jesus is not talking about here in the prayer, in his prayer, is him dying on the cross. He's not talking about the doctrine of redemption or reconciliation or propitiation. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is how do we view our sin and how do we view our forgiveness of those sins and how do we view those who sin against us accordingly and how do we view that on a daily basis. So, how do you feel about sin? <clears throat> In uh, there's a uh, author called Plantinga, 
an interesting name. He's a, a wonderful author, uh, evangelistic uh, pastor, uh, who writes about a film. I haven't seen the film, but he, he writes about it like this. In the film, it's a film called Grand Canyon. I haven't seen it, but in the, in the film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. Then comes the predictable nightmare. His expensive car stalls in one of those alarming streets, like in the ghetto. Right? This, you know, if you're, I'm sure in the movie, as things get darker and more desolate, you know that his car is going to break down. Uh, <clears throat> the streets are guarded by teenage thugs, of course. Uh, and the attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, before, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Then, just in time, the tow truck driver shows up, and its driver, an earnest and genial man, begins to hook up the disabled car. The thugs or toughs protest. The truck driver is interrupting their crime, if you will. The driver takes the leader aside in the movie, and he says, quote, Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can, and that dude is supposed to be able to wait for his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Uh, and this is true all over the world, and it has been true since the fall. Are things on earth the way they're supposed to be? Are things on earth the way, at any time, have they been the way that this world was designed to be? And the answer is no, it never has been. And at the greatest of times, we, just, we say, well, the times now are better than they used to be, right? You're comparing just to worse times. Or you say, well, my sins aren't as bad as yours. And so I get to judge you. But really, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. You're not the way you're supposed to be because we're sinners. And the world's not the way it's supposed to be. So in us, we can have this attitude of, well, so what? I'm forgiven. I don't care if I sin. I don't care if you sin. I don't care. You know? Sin away. Whatever. You know, you're forgiven. Have fun. Don't worry about it. But the Bible is so crystal clear about how we feel about sin. It is time and time and time again shown to be the problem. Like, why, did the, why does the Exodus, you know, what's wrong with Cain? Right? The first instance, what does God say to him? Sin is crouching at the door and it's desirous for you. That's the warning from God in Genesis chapter 4. Cain brought the wrong offering. And he's jealous of his brother. Abel brought the right offering. We would assume in that case that Abel didn't like think this up, that God instructed them in this, that you bring animal, that is the blood of the animal, that is the sacrifice. And Cain brought fruit and vegetables and stuff like that. And I'm sure he worked hard for them. The ground was cursed. He tilled the ground. He made something great out of the ground by the sweat of his brow. And he brought the best, the first fruits, if you will, to God. And God said, no, that's not what I'm looking for. See, what your brother Abel did is what I'm looking for. And instead of just changing, instead of just saying, you know what, I'm sorry. I thought you'd like this, but apparently I get it, right? So 
So I'm going to change. I'll go to my brother and get a, a lamb or a goat, and I'll you know, bring that to you and sacrifice it. But he didn't. And God said to Cain, sin is crouching. What's crouching at the door? Sin. And right from then on, what's the problem? Sin. Why does God have to bring the flood? Because there's too many people? Global warming? Run out of fossil fuels? No. It's sin. As he he says in Genesis 6, there is evil continually in the heart of man. God says, I regret that I've made man. It's a crazy passage to understand. And so what is the problem? It's sin. So can we see for us, when we're saying, Father, forgive us our sins, how we feel about that statement is of extreme importance. Because how we feel about that statement is really how we feel about God. Now, I am in no way saying that how we feel about sin has any bearing on our forgiveness. This is not penance. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere do people make up for their sins. or Nowhere do people work off their sins. It doesn't happen anywhere, nor does God say to. How you feel about your sin has no bearing whatsoever on your forgiveness. And that statement, I grew up Catholic, as you know, and when I finally came to be a believer and, and learn doctrine from a doctrinal teacher, when I heard that you're forgiven no matter how you feel about your sin, I was set free. But as a young believer, you can really take that in a way that you shouldn't, uh, which I heartily did. Uh, forgiveness has always been, before Christ and after Christ, based on the crucifixion of Christ. And as we saw yesterday, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So how you feel about sin, and I do mean all sin, is not a judicial or a legal matter, because you are forgiven judicially and legally, meaning that you're justified. But how you feel about sin is a relational matter. It will make the difference between a life ruled by God and lived with God, and a life that is ruled by the nature of sin, and a life with sin. And there's a starch difference, a strong difference between the two. If sin rules me, if an area of sin rules me, then my life is not what it ought to be. So is it possible that we can live a life the way that it ought to be? And the answer to that from the New Testament is absolutely yes. We were elected to it, in fact. We were made as new creatures for that very reason. And so as we mature, we're to overcome sin. Hence, every day, as the Lord tells us, we are, we are reminded, forgive us our sins. Today we have sins, tomorrow we have sins, yesterday we'll have, we had sins, tomorrow we will have more. But do they rule me? Uh, am I overcome by them? And that gets to how we feel about them, really meaning our attitude towards them. So first we look at the, that's why we're in Isaiah 9, all right? So the prophets of the Bible, you know, they were very familiar with the sin of the people that they prophesied to. You see it all throughout the prophets. That 
they knew that sin had a thousand faces. What was wrong in Israel? Idol worship. They did the things that idol worship called them to. Uh, after they returned from captivity, they didn't go back to idol worship. They went to a more legalistic way, and still the sins remained. Jesus pointed them out to them, to the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. Woe to you. Right? You know those phrases where he said it over and over again. Woe to you. Right? You tithe, you strain out a gnat, you swallow a camel. Like this, you are, you are full of dead men's bones. You're a whitewashed tomb. You're full of sin. And you know, the prophets, Jesus being the greatest of prophets, knew that the sin had a thousand faces. They knew how many ways human life can go wrong. And why did the prophets know how many ways, the same way that we should, how life can go wrong? We see uh, young people, they'll dabble around, and I I saw today a report on, since the lockdown, how many uh, overdose deaths have happened amongst young people have gone up considerably since kids stopped going to school and they were locked down at home. It seems to be the the correlation. How many violent crimes by young people? Uh, All of it's gone up. Drug use, violent crime, stuff like that. you know, a young person may say, well, uh, you know, I'm going to spend all day watching YouTube and watching pornography and stuff like that. I mean, come on, no one sees it, but they don't know, right? It, unless they have someone to tell them or to restrict them, they don't know the damage that they're doing to their own souls, to their own hearts. If a kid doesn't get an education, he says, well, you know, what does it matter? Well, you're doing damage to yourself. If you don't educate your brain, if you don't learn how to work, if you don't learn how to take care of yourself, how to be responsible, you're, you're damaging your life. But when they're young, they don't know that. And that's why God gave them parents. Um, unfortunately, that responsibility is shirked way too much. And so kids grow up without the necessary skills to live. They've damaged themselves. Well, believers can do the same thing right? by not learning. You know, we, uh, the prophets showed us what life should be. And if we don't know what life should be, what it should look like, how do we know the ways it can go wrong? So we do wrong things. We sin, and we say, well, wh- what does it matter? Right? Is, what's going to happen? What does it matter? Am I going to, is there going to be ramifications? And as we grow in the scripture, we find out that, you know, as a, the Catholics taught us, are there mortal sins and venial sins? Like the mortal ones were the really bad ones, and the venial ones were the not-so-bad ones. And, uh, you know, such things exist. And in a way, yeah, you know, some sins have more repercussions than others. But we find out that all sin has repercussions. A long time living in something that's a so-called small sin, if it rules you, will be your end. If it rules you, you're not going to accomplish in the spiritual life what you ought to be. Hence, Christ tells us, pray this, forgive us our sins, or forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We're reminded every day that we are sinners and we have forgiveness. And that is to open up our heart to what? You know, what is life supposed to be? Life is not supposed to be ruled by sin. And that's for all human beings. 
but only the believer in Christ has the opportunity to overcome. Now, the, with these prophets, they spoke of sin, right? They condemned Israel for sin over and over. That's what, you know, were the prophets real popular? What a terrible job to be a prophet in Israel. I always think of Jeremiah was told to stand outside the temple at one of the feasts where which there were thousands and thousands of people coming in. He's that guy out front, like the person out front of Walmart telling you that the world's coming to the end. That was, a, that was Jeremiah. He had to stand out there and tell Israel that their nation was coming to an end because of their sin. And he found himself in jail for it. Threatened. Nobody wanted to hear it. Of course they don't want to hear it. And that's why we have to be reminded of it. I'll talk about that in a second. The prophets spoke of the sin of Israel, but the prophets also spoke of a time that was to come. They all did. We call it the millennial reign. The time that was to come, foretold by them, where God would put everything right again. And we find it in the millennial reign that when Christ here rules on earth, when somebody commits a crime, it is dealt with immediately because there are unbelievers on the earth during the millennium. And, uh, you know, they're going to do some bad stuff. If it's worthy of a capital punishment, it's carried out immediately. No one gets away with anything. And therefore, Christ creates the world in the way that it should be. For all of eternity, the prophets also spoke of this, is that in heaven... God, humans, and all creation. There'll be animals in heaven. At least there's white horses. We know that. But I'm thinking there's going to be way more. Uh, Heaven, actually, the future is also, it's here on earth. Because that's where the new Jerusalem is. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new heaven and on that new earth, earth, (laughs) there'll be justice, fulfillment, and joy in every person. Sin will be gone. And death will be gone, which is the result of sin. And the prophets called this shalom. Now, you know this word, because the Jews say it to each other as a greeting. Shalom. And shalom means peace. And shalom is also the description of a world of peace. And it's a world without sin. Shalom. And it means peace. Peace between two parties. God and man. Now, how can that peace occur when God is perfectly righteous and sinless and mankind is unrighteous and sinful? This peace cannot happen without the forgiveness of sins. And this is why, and if we fast forward in this, when I pray, Father, forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors, that God is really speaking of my peace with him. So it takes me really back to the beginning of the prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, you're my Father, I'm your child. You're in heaven, you're holy, you're righteous, your kingdom, your will. You will provide for me, and I have peace with you. But I still commit sin, yes, but I'm forgiven. This in no way makes me want to run headlong into sin. Because if I want the Father's relationship, knowing Him, seeing Him, relating with Him, walking with Him, if I want that, then I want peace with Him. And peace means that I acknowledge my sin and I acknowledge His forgiveness. And a lifestyle of sin doesn't do that. 
So look at Isaiah 9.2. So this, uh, sorry, look at Isaiah 9.6. Right? A uh, child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Shalom. That's the word. Peace. Shalom. And there will be no end or increase of his government or of peace. Again, shalom. So he's the ti- his title is Prince of Shalom. One of his many titles. And his government and his world will have eternal shalom. Now you can't have eternal shalom without the people in the kingdom also having peace with the king and peace with one another. So you can see the connection here to, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. Because if we, don't have, if we have peace with God, but we don't have peace with one another, there's a problem. I don't really have peace with God if I'm bitter and judgmental and angry at you. There's something wrong with my peace that goes vertically because I don't have peace with you horizontally. Even if you've sinned against me, it doesn't matter. And so God is giving us now in our souls, in our hearts, through the forgiveness of sins, He's given us shalom. Peace. And and within ourselves. So if someone, even people, they hate me, they want to do evil to me, they want to, they've taken my things, they want me to, oh, right? And, and you just want to, what do I want to do? We talked about this a lot on Sunday. I want to get back, I want to fight back, I want to get revenge. How's your peace now? You have none. And by the way, even if you do get back at them, it, it doesn't, there's no eternal ramifications whatsoever. And you might have damaged their uh, ability to see the gospel in you. Actually, you really have. Because you haven't shown the light of God to them. You've shown the darkness of your own flesh that wants revenge. But vengeance is the Lord's, as he says. And so our peace with God must come because we're forgiven. So, how do you feel about your sin now? How I feel about it, does it matter? Greatly. Greatly. Now, to understand this Prince of Peace stuff, stuff, I shouldn't say that, title, we have to actually go back and see the context. Because shalom means a universal flourishing, a wholeness, a delight amongst all of us. Shalom is the way things ought to be. Sin was what? Was God said, it contaminated us. He said, cursed are you uh, at the fall. So sin is the contamination that cursed man and earth away from shalom. The first two, uh, Cain and Abel, did not have peace. One murdered the other. Sin interjected and ruined the peace of the first brothers. That's telling. Right? God reveals that to us. Adam and Eve probably had, oh, who knows, they might have had hundreds of kids. They lived to be 900 years old. I can imagine they were fertile as all get out. (laughs) 
but even though it was the curse upon the woman was upon Eve, there was child pain in childbirth, but they probably had dozens and dozens of kids. But the ones that we're told about are three. Cain, Abel, one kills the other. So sin immediately breaks brothers. But then God provides the next in line, who is Seth. And from Seth, who's in the image of his father, from Seth, who's in the image of God, will come the line that will go to Noah and Abraham and so on. So what does that show us? Though brothers are split by sin, God will not give up on us and He'll provide the continuance of that which is good and blessing. So for us, you know, we offer peace to those who hate us. If they continue to hate us and won't accept the peace, it doesn't mean that you know, we go on with the blessing of God. <clears throat> now, if shalom has been removed from the earth and from mankind by sin, it cannot be given back without sin being paid for. So notice this. Isaiah 9.2 The people who walk in darkness. Well, there we are. It's all of us. Dark and, dark and dumb. So dumb. Right? People who don't know the Lord, people who don't know the truth of the Scripture, they can have all kinds of things. That, I mean, they, many of them uh, know some things at least to look pretty smart. You know, I just saw a great interview uh, in, in done in a, the, one of the uh, YouTube channels that I like uh, that uh, did this great interview with um, uh, two great, one is a great historian, the other a great philosopher, these are all, all contemporary people, and one a great uh, microbiologist. The, the biologist was the believer. The philosopher is kind of on the fence about Christianity, about Christ. The historian, an admitted unbeliever, who admits that Christianity changed the world. And they had a discussion about the, the, um, the existence of God. Now, these, the two unbelievers have enormous intellect. They're both graduates of like uh, Oxford or something. And enormous intellect. But what you could see in them is this limited. I mean, they know so much more about the world and about history and about philosophy and about science, about things that you and I, we don't even hardly know any of it compared to them. But yet when it came to understanding things that matter, they were at a complete loss. And all they could say is that it's mysterious. That's all they could say. Yet without the, without the forgiveness of our sins, that guy we quoted yesterday, Sir Scrutton, who said, you know, we, we get those wonderful opportunities that have meaning. It's like looking out a window and we're like, wow, this, this moment in my life is filled with meaning. But what is it? What is that meaning? And the meaning is the Son of God who came into the world. And if my sins aren't forgiven, then I can't know of Him. Right? There's no peace. To learn from someone, you have to have peace. You have to actually communicate. And we can communicate with God. So, Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness. I don't care how intellectual people are. If they don't have a relationship with God, the darkness is over them. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in, the, in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Notice this in comparison to the opening of John's Gospel. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 4 and 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Right? Who is the life, and who is the light? I always, I always point this out when I read this verse or quote it. The life is the light, not the other way around. The light isn't the life. The life is the light. And so the life that is Christ, the eternal life, came into the world and lit up the darkness. And you see a lot of light in the birth of Christ, right? The angels, when they shined, when they shone forth, scared the heck out of the shepherds. And there's a star that is a light that the Magi are following. So the people walk in darkness, who walk in darkness, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then verse 3, Thou or you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. Right There's the blessing upon the people. They will be glad at your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Right into an agricultural world. When the, when the harvest is in, that's the best time of the year. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Midian, right? Uh, this is uh, uh, the battle of Midian is, uh, is Gideon, where Gideon with 300 men destroy uh, and defeat 135,000 army against them. Uh, so, and then he continues, every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult, meaning a war, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. And what that means is no more war. So the booted warrior, the cloak rolled in blood, meaning he's been in battle, those things are gone now and we burn them. But going back to verse 4, it says, you will break the yoke of their burden. What is this yoke? What is this burden? It could refer to the nations that oppressed Israel and enslaved them. It could refer to Satan. But if the nations that, that were wicked and Satan, who is evil, were removed, we still have our sin. We still have no place with God and no peace with God and no peace with one another. And so the yoke is not necessarily evil people or the great evil angel Satan. It is the sin that results in death. And notice, he breaks it. So fast forward to Jesus' ministry. He says, my yoke is, right? It's not burdensome. My yoke is easy. My yoke is light. Why is that? Because my yoke is salvation. My yoke is forgiveness. So with this, we see, then we see in verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. But he has to break the yoke before he can bring the peace. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Shalom. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of Shalom. Shalom will never die. It will always be peace. Isn't peace a wonderful thing? When you have, you know you have it, there's an emotional response to it. Almost every time. 
We are at peace. We're calm. From peace flows happiness. Uh, and, you know, there's that, there's that general happiness. But if you don't have peace with, that goes with that general happiness, you're, you're never the one who experiences the spontaneous joy. I love when those... Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis writes a book uh, called Surprised by Joy. It's, a, it's, it's an autobiography about his life. But he talks about the times in that book where there were, he was just overwhelmed with joy. And he wondered where it came from. As Later on, he knew that it came from God. But for us as believers instantaneous joy. It's not with us all the time. It wouldn't be special if it was. But there are times with people, just in your own thoughts, with God and prayer or wherever, where all of a sudden you're overwhelmed with joy. If you're not a person who lives in peace, you'll never see those times. You're not ready for them. They'll pass you right by. There is no end to his peace. So we should finish this because the context is wonderful. It continues. Uh, again, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And then he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Right? Why does it happen? Why does it come? Why does God save us? Why does God send His Son to make peace? Because God has zeal for it. Is God for you or not? Well, He's got zeal for it. Zeal's a strong word. It means that God wants this more than anything. But He can't force us. He can't be forced. That is, that is the big... Uh, well, I say it, it makes life interesting. That we got to choose it. And we have what? All around us. So, <laughs> well, we'll get, i got to hurry up and I'll get to this. Uh, Prince of Peace. Uh, this one from Luke 177. This is Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who didn't believe that at such an old age he could have a son. He should have known better, you know, right? He, he knew the story of Abraham and Sarah. He's, he's a priest in Israel. But anyway, he's the father of John the Baptist. After John is born, Zechariah gets his voice back. You know, he was struck dumb by the angel because he wouldn't believe. He gets his voice back and he prophesies. And this is one of this is the end of his prophecy. He says in Luke 177 to give his people the knowledge of salvation. Who? Well, that he is this is uh, John's cousin, John the Baptist's cousin, who is Jesus. To give his people the knowledge of salvation by what? The forgiveness of their sins. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Sounds like Isaiah, right? The light came into the darkness. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Shalom. The way things ought to be. Jesus said in John 14, night before he died, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. My peace, my shalom. But without the remission of sins, without the forgiveness of sins, that is impossible. He can't just give it to us. Jesus just can't come into the world and say, you know what, I'm going to set up a government of peace with a bunch of sinners. It's not going to happen. Something has to be done. And this is what we are told to remember every single day. Forgive us our sins 
Forgive us our debts. And we know we're forgiven. Colossians 1.20 Through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Peace doesn't come without it. So again, how do we feel about sin? This should clearly show us how bad and evil sin is. So what have we just seen so far? The existence of sin prevents the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. Right? The prince of peace can't bring peace until he breaks the yoke. This place is dark, and it can't be enlightened without the light. What is preventing the kingdom of God from being here? Sin. You know, our, our fabulously smart uh, leaders, politicians, other gurus of the elite tell us that they can make a perfect world here if we're all just get on board with what they want. And they've got it all figured out, right? Or they'll figure it out, they promise, after they make blunder after blunder after blunder. And nothing works. The communists said, we got to figure out. The Nazis said, we got to figure out, National Socialists. And they're still doing this. They're still trying to, they're saying, look, we'll figure this all out. But their problem, they don't understand. The problem isn't legislation. The problem isn't even the type of government. The problem is the sin of mankind. From that opening quote from the movie, right? the tow truck driver says to the thug, things aren't supposed to be this way. I'm supposed to be able to come here and be able to tow this guy's car without asking your permission. And he's supposed to be able to wait here in peace and not be harassed by you. But we don't see that. Now think about it. What is stopping the kingdom of God from coming? Sin. Now, follow, me, follow with me now. If the existence of sin prevents the kingdom of the coming of God to make life the way it ought to be, what is sin preventing in your life and in mine? How bad is sin? Sin is bad enough that it's stopping the coming of the kingdom of God. It has to be broken. When Jesus comes a second time at his second coming, right? he comes and makes war. Why does he make war? Because there are armies that are made of millions of people who are coming to crush Israel and to crush him, to crush his own people. And when he comes back, he ends them. Right? Going into his millennial reign, there are no unbelievers. But we know that believers will give birth to children who will reject Christ, and then the world will quickly fill up with unbelievers again, sadly enough. But when Christ comes back, you know the, the bad, evil people cannot be here when he establishes his kingdom. This is how bad sin is. And so again, the question, how do we feel about it? How we feel about our sin, all sin, right? Instead of looking at the people whose sins we detest, uh, whatever they may be, all of us have our different, it depends on our you know, upbringing, both our nurture and our nature, that we have opinions about sins and about wrongdoing and we classify them. You know, that's the worst, that's not so bad, that's the very worst, uh, that's not, you know, and we, we give them uh, certain categories. Uh, but, <clears throat> you know, our, it's our attitude towards all sin because all sin is against God, and God hates it all. 
There's none of it acceptable. None. And that's the attitude that God is giving us when every day we say, forgive us our sins. All right, let's go to Isaiah, uh, sorry, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We'll just do a quick overview of this. I'm not going to all the detail I have. So the reason I always pick Psalm 51 for this very message. How do you feel about sin? Um, because you know, though for those who know they're forgiven. Especially in America, right? What what do Americans have a a lot of? Well, you know, we're kind of rebels, aren't we? Don't we kind of love that? Like Boston Tea Party, right? King George is going to tax our tea. Well, you know, we're going to sneak onto a ship. I think they were dressed as Indians or something. I can't remember all the story. But they, they dumped all the tea into Boston Harbor. And so, yeah, there you go, you know, right there, George. And we're not going to—we're not paying tea tax. We'll dump all your tea into the into the harbor. And so, what are we? You know, we're born rebels. And this this rebel kind of attitude, especially when we find out what, that our sins are forgiven, and they're cast as far as the east is from the west, that we can be quite rebellious against God and against His Word. So, look at David here. First, let's get the title so we know what this psalm is about. Uh, for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So I'm sure we all know the story, um, but if you don't, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the whole sordid thing. Uh, <clears throat> so the title is helpful, helpful to us. David had committed in a moment of weakness, a sin that would do the greatest harm to him and to others that he had ever done. He took Bathsheba, saw her on a roof. She's a very attractive woman. He, even though he found out she was married, he slept with her and she with him. There was always the debate uh, of you know who gave in or who was complicit. The Bible doesn't tell us, so since the Bible doesn't tell us, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is that they, they slept with each other and then she got pregnant, and when she got pregnant, David killed her husband. He didn't do it with his own hand, though. He sent his general, Joab, to set it up, and Uriah, her husband, was killed in battle on purpose. It was planned. So basically, Uriah was murdered. Uh, David went on trying to ignore this. He ignored it. Now, this is what we do. <laughs> this is a great lesson in this. That, you know, how do we feel about sin? Well, this one was a bad one. So I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen and I'm going to go on. And David can't go on. He tries, but he can't. Right? What does he say here? Uh, I think it's in verse 3, is it? Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Ever before me? Yeah. And it's hard to get over this. David's a good man. He's a lover of the Lord. He knows he's done wrong. This poor woman's husband is dead. 
And now she, you know, she's pregnant by the king. And this is, you know, it's it's a scandal in Israel. Her life is ruined. Uriah's life is gone. And he even made Joab, his general, complicit. He had done a horrible thing. David really never recovered from this either. So, can he? Can we leave it behind? The answer is no. Right. So when Christ says, "Pray this: forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts," these are things that <clears throat> includes all of them. But we also know we have sins that we we have more sins than we know we've committed. But we also have a past that wants to run up and take over and make us feel shameful, um, condemned, that I'll never, I'll never be the person I want to be. I can't undo those things, right? He can't undo this. This is done. And neither can we. And so look at verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from Your presence and do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of Your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors Your way and sinners will be converted to You. <clears throat> now, do you see in here David has an that? Do you read in these lines that David's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I sinned, I know, I knocked her up, I know, I killed her husband, I know. Just go to the flock, get me a bull. Well, the, the bull's not in the flock. Go to the herd, get me a bull. Now let's take it to the priest. Let's get it over with. We can have this sacrifice done before lunch, and then I can get on with my life. You read that in these lines? No. What do you read in these lines? A broken-hearted man who longs for a clean heart and not the one that is stained by what he's done. He longs for the joy of his salvation. Now, has David lost his salvation? We know no. No one can lose their salvation. But the joy of his salvation has gone away. Why? Because of sin. And because he has not for us, we confess, we don't bring animal sacrifices, but for us, we know of God's forgiveness and we don't deal with God's forgiveness in a way that is arrogant or proud or we deserve it. But as David does here and will continue to read, deliver me, verse 14, from, my, from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Right? This is repeated. I want my joy back. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you don't delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Right? In reality, it's a ritual. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. And so David reveals plainly to us here that his heart is broken, his spirit is broken, and that his heart, contrite means humble. He's thoroughly humbled. 
By what? By his sin. But also by the forgiveness of God. He lost his joy. He didn't lose his salvation. He lost his joy. Why? Because of his sin. And through his confession, he would get it back. His joy. And then, he would actually be able to leave this behind. But he would marry Bathsheba. And David... Now, so, just a... To this last thing about sin that I'll say today is that this is dealing with an individual, well, it's more than one, right? We have taking her, we have sleeping with her, we have lying, we have murder, uh, we have uh, many sins are being committed. But why did David do this in the first place? When's the last time you went up to a rooftop and said, hey, well, you're not the king, so... You know, when's the last time you kidnapped somebody as a, as, you know, to have sex with them? <laughs> and if you say this morning, please don't volunteer. Uh, <clears throat> we don't talk about that here at church. So, no, but, right, like, what, what is Dave, what we see that David actually has had a weakness for attractive women his whole life, his whole adult life. He's got multiple wives. And that's a violation of the Mosaic Law. The king is supposed to have one wife. He's got multiple. God had let this go on. You say, why didn't God stop him? Well, (laughs) why doesn't God stop us? Because, you know, God wants us to come to, hence this prayer, forgive us our sins. God wants us to come to an acknowledgement and understanding of what sin really is and then agree with him as to its heinous, evil terrible nature and then when we do that we'll not only forgive others but there's another thing we won't do and again this gets to how do we think about sin what do we feel about sin we won't make jokes about it we won't laugh it off we won't say ah you know it doesn't matter we will see it for the evil that it is. It's what Satan has gotten and been able to sneak so much sin into the church because we haven't had this attitude towards it. And so, you know, from the pulpit. Now, did you guys all, you, you knew that sin was wrong before you get in here, right? There's nobody here saying, wow, thanks, Pastor Joe. I didn't know sin was wrong. But because we live in a world that is saturated with sin and we live in a body <clears throat> that wants sin and a mind that at times wants sin, that we get dull to it. We start to compl- get a little complicit. And as one author wrote that I love, we have to sharpen our doctrines. The same doctrines we know, we're being reminded of them, yes, but our, our understanding of them have to be sharpened. Because they they grate against the world, right? When you use a saw, it becomes more and more dull the more you use it. And we go out into the world with our doctrines, and we use our doctrines, and they grate, they grind against the world, and they get dull. And what can happen is we get dull. And so we have to come back into church, or read or study, and we have to resharpen. We have to sharpen our tools. And that's what this, the Lord's Prayer does that for us. This study does this for us. Joy is a, uh, sorry, sin is a terrible, terrible blight upon the human race. It is the whole reason for our problems. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for reminding us 
of sin, but also reminding us of our forgiveness and of the Prince of Peace. Your Son will return and make peace. He had to break the yoke of sin first, and He has already done it. As He was broken and torn to pieces on the cross, He broke and tore to pieces our sin. And we, through His incredible sacrifice, are forgiven. So we ask, Father, that our tools would be sharpened here and that we would renew our attitude towards sin to reject it and to loathe it as you do and therefore avoid it and teach others to do the same. We ask in Christ's name, amen.